welcome to the third episode of the ARC Audio Review. I am your host, Snorri Rafn Hallsson. There are so many things wrong in this world. At times it's overwhelming and one wonders whether the right choice would be to hit the restart button on the world, try turning it off and on again in a vain attempt to somehow fix things. This often works on our gadgets and electronics, but the world doesn't have a restart button and I'm afraid starting from scratch is simply too much work. Too much would be lost. One can be against everything, and some people definitely are. But fighting everything at once is not an option. In the month of June, we at ArcBooks try to collectively write against everything, one subject at a time. And this time the theme is therefore against blank. You gotta fill in the blank. With limited time and resources, the contributors to the ARC review unfortunately failed to live up to the goal of being against everything. In fact, they only managed to be against six things. The priests of truth, book recommendations, books, individuals, classics, and sanctity. Taken together, they certainly do not amount to everything. Not even most things. But they tried, and that has to count for something. Six divided by infinity is basically nothing. Yet, that doesn't mean that we aren't really against everything. Reading the articles, which I suggest you do as soon as possible, they're great. One gets the sense that the way we treat books and literature can be problematic at times. And in this episode, we'll be looking at how the glorification of literature can hold back our reading experiences and constrain our life in literature. One problem is that we're often told that we are supposed to have read certain books or have certain opinions about them. This can cause us grief. We feel ashamed for not having read something that apparently everyone who knows anything about books must have read but we don't have to read everything to know something. We shouldn't feel guilty about what we have or haven't read. No one can read everything there is, and Google tells me that there are approximately 130 million books in the world, with more coming out every day. Even if one were to read 10,000 books in one's lifetime, that's only 0.0000762% of all books. Again, basically nothing. So, to relieve people of their guilt, I've set up a confession booth of sorts in the bookshop, where people are welcome to confess their so-called sins, rid themselves of their guilty conscience, or pray for strength to finish or read those books they truly want to read. Forgive me, literary establishment, for I have sinned. It's been too long since my last confession. It's a sin of omission. I, uh, I have no problem with not having read the, the classic classics. I, I think I'm a, I'm a creature of immediate times, but, but there's one book which has undermined all of my POMO credentials. Oh, literary establishment, I've not read Gravity's Rainbow. 
by Thomas Pynchon. I feel this burden weighing me down when I try and have witty banter about the complexity of narrative structures which go, don't go anywhere. I bought it from Ark two years ago. I just read The Crying of Lot 49 and I, I knew it had been a challenge even though it was so short, but I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could pull it off, but it's every trip, every trip I've always thought, oh, it's, it's too heavy to take with me. I should have heeded the warnings a few years ago when someone said to me, yeah, sure, we all sat around the pool reading Infinite Jest together, but Pynchon, he gives you nothing. I knew it was, I knew, I, I knew it was the case with Lot 49. But a friend of mine, uh, a friend, one of the few people who has actually read Finnegan's Wake, he's given up on three separate occasions reading Gravity's Rainbow. It was only on this most recent try having to take a train for 12 hours without access to Wi-Fi, then he managed to break it. I got 16 pages in to Gravity's Rainbow. And I, I fear I may never read it. Oh, literary establishment, when will I have the time? I sent this clip to the literary establishment and this is their reply. It's good that you fessed up to your sins. However, we, like you, fear that you will never have the time to read Gravity's Rainbow. <sighs> that was kind of harsh. I find it interesting to hear that people are fine with not having read the classic classics. I'm not particularly touchy about having or not having read something. However, it's exactly the classics where I feel I'm lacking in some way. I never spent any time with Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. I gave up a third of the way through Moby Dick, and when I was supposed to read Pride and Prejudice in high school, I just watched the BBC series instead. Check out that Darcy scene. But aren't the classics precisely the books that everyone should have read, or at least be familiar enough with them to be able to fake it? Isn't there something special about these books that have stood the test of time, books that have been read by generation after generation? There must be a certain je ne sais quoi that allows the classics to stand out from the rest, to rise above the mediocrity of most literary efforts. These are, after all, the greatest books of all time, right? My name is Neus, and yes, my name means snow in Catalan. Neus begs to differ. In her article on the ARC Review, Against Classics, she argues against the idea that some books inherently deserve to be put above all else. Yeah, I think the problem is that being in certain like surroundings or contexts, when you say, for instance, that you you like reading or you like listening to music, then you will always encounter someone who's like, oh, have you read this? This is a classic. How can you say that you like reading if you haven't read this? Or like, how can you say you know so much about music if you haven't listened to this album? Mm -hmm. The problem with the concept of classics is that there is no real definition of it. It's kind of like everyone is supposed to know what a classic is and that is legitimized by certain people. And that people tends to be people that have power versus people who don't have that much power or they don't have access to 
develop tools to enter the power structure. So I think that's why a concept like the classics in literature, it's a big problem related to power. So what is it that makes the classics so classic? I don't think there is a real way to define it. It's just this idea that we all have in our minds, in our like culture, probably. There have been some books and some normally people at the university telling you what is a classic. And it it tends to be this book that uh, for some reason has transcended time and space. And it's supposed to have something that other books don't have. And everyone should read it because of that. I think the reason why they've transcended time and space is not because of their uniqueness. It's not about the books itself, but rather who who is in the position to decide that that book is a classic. And that might be for personal interest or just pure coincidence that a book was at their like in the right place at the right time. Who are the people that wield the power to canonize certain books and not others? There is a pattern through history and like certain people have historically have access to positions of power and therefore is is always the same kind of people that can decide what it is like what is a classic and what is not. And if you look back to history and you look back to like most of these people who have decided what a classic is like literature professors or like universities have decided what is a classic like you can see a pattern and of course people with power will try to keep their status and because of that there are parts of society that are excluded into certain stories and also they're denied in some way or the other to have access to those classics. This guy Bloom, he he wrote a book. He's like a Yale professor, like he's been at the English department for centuries. And he writes this book with like all this list of classics. And and at the introduction, he talks about how this this was written in the 90s. And he kind of like, he's not okay with people being critical about classics because he realizes that people are starting to have another agenda while reading books. So we're not just going to sit and smoke cigarettes and be very privileged and just study and be at Yale University all our lives. But rather people are starting to read books and try to understand different stories and different experiences. And for that, you need people who haven't been at Yale University for centuries writing books and other people that are not studying at Yale University reading books and being critical about it. Um, so he talks about this like this school of resentment, uh, all these people who think that literature and reading books can actually bring some social change in our society so we can actually use fiction to change something. 
What are we supposed to do with the idea of a classic? Is it necessary to throw the concept of classics away in order to bring about social change? It would be nice to just get rid of it. But at the same time, I understand that that, that can happen from like overnight. So maybe it does make sense to try play the same rules and slowly change the concept. So try to make it more inclusive. And then at some, like when we reach a new stage where the concept has developed enough to reach more parts of society, then we can decide whether or not we want to get rid of it. We can do several things. We can discuss more the idea of classic and try to find better definitions for it. And most importantly, we can, people who are in power need to realize that they are in power and need to start creating spaces for those who historically haven't had access to power. Basically that. And of course, us as readers try to be more critical and less judgmental and so decided to read a book not because it's a classic but rather because you think it will give you something you will learn something about it and you can understand different realities through it but don't read something just because someone has told you to read it because it's supposed to be a classic because that doesn't make any sense why would you do something just because someone says you have to do it? Literary establishment, I come humble before you to seek your help, for I need strength. Aware of my weaknesses, I ask you, pray for me. Through negligence and the destruction of, oh, too many earthly delights, I have abandoned one magnificent work, truth and method, in the midst of the lecture. Leaving this book unfinished, like an ungrateful stranger who, after having inquired for directions on the street, just turns around and leaves without a word of gratitude, Living Gadame just like that, this has been my greatest literary shame. Literary establishment, please give me strength. Strength to proceed through the pages of this work, to finally understand the ways of philosophical hermeneutics, the paradox of the hermeneutical circle, and the intricacies of the fusion of the horizon. Many a time I tried to return, and yet all I ever faced was failure. I confess I may not have been the most diligent student of the philosophical text, but I overcame many no lesser challenges, driven by the promise of truth and insight. If only I could find again the spirit which guided me while I read Being in Time, or Being in Nothingness, or Nothingness in Time, or the unbearable being of nothingness, 
the spirit which made my resolve strong and my eyes eager to consume the wisdom of the great masters. This congregation I am a devout member of. Please do help your brother in my time of need and pray for me, for I am guilty of letting Hans-Georg Gadamer's truth and method pass unread and I need your help to shoulder this burden or else I shall perish in ignorance. Amen. Literature is not a holy text. To qualify that statement, literature, whether classic, modernist, experimental, or asinine, does not know you left it next to your Hello Kitty poster or your box set of friends for years. Just like the text doesn't know you wrote sarcastic comments in the margin or doodled a portrait of your professor in drag. Tear it down from its pedestal and you can start seeing the book for what it is a human artifact with all the drawbacks and genius that entails. The advantage of this approach is that understanding literature as a fallible project permits you to let go of the anxiety and disappointment that sometimes occurs when you read an acclaimed literary work. Namely, the fear that if you're not enjoying it, something's wrong. One of the most useful aspects of working against sanctity is that it peels away at the classical status. No one can escape history, but you can make sure that you don't let a book decide what you think of it a priori. Remember, people dislike literature for reasons like the number of temporal adjectives was stifling, or their unbearably long-winded narrative structure. I mean, I'm not pointing any fingers, Sir Walter Scott, but footnotes. Yet the most common thought is probably, why am I not enjoying this? It's obviously great literature, TM. Tadeusz Borowski's short stories in this way for the gas, ladies and gentlemen, are seminal pieces of literature that interrogate and expose the complete wretchedness and ambivalence of being a capo in Auschwitz. It's not going to leave you riveted or giggling away with anything but the madness found in despair, but you don't have to enjoy it, and you don't have to like it, even if it is a classical work on show experiences. Working against a text's sanctity is to allow it to be unsettling or uncomfortable, the least of which is to allow yourself not to like it and be at rest with that feeling. By extension, someone wrote that book, spent hours laboring over it, days, years probably. They poured over it, put their hearts and souls into its very words and foundation. But did they let their love for a phrase get them to damn their advice? Did they come up with a character arc that goes off a damn cliff? Probably. They're human. You can respect an author's immense abilities and still think they could have edited out that exposition or the description of a woodland creature, faulting them for including inane detail, like how the protagonist opens the fridge, opens the book up to a critical viewpoint you may not allow yourself to pursue if you hold on to the sanctity of the text as a completed whole. Perhaps most efficiently, and most importantly to me, don't be afraid to jot things down the margin or in the middle of a paragraph. Be bolder. Use a pen. Make fun of the authorial voice or paint a fat stache on their lofty authorial lips. The very physical process of putting your thoughts and ideas onto the page of the text that spurred them makes it a much more personal experience. 
rather than relying on the testimonies of a lot of critics or some famous author. And part of that personal process can be to establish connections with the text, both intertextually and personally. If you approach it without prejudice and with a healthy dose of skepticism, you open it up to further investigation from without typical boundaries. For instance, is there a really close resemblance between Darth Vader and the behavior of the antagonist? Or is the internal dialogue reminiscent of a particular impressionistic painting you glimpsed on a family vacation in France? No one says you have to use this for anything but your own benefit. Keep it interesting. Even more so, the text may resonate with events in your own life. Even more so, the text may resonate with events in your own life. Does the absent father figure remind you of your father? Better keep reading to see if at least he comes back. Does the protagonist remind you of yourself? Maybe he, she won't become depressed. Finally, make of it what you will. Literature can compel and inspire great ideas and thoughts, vast trajectories of academic work, or your own fictional writing. But you can finish a book, close it, sit back, even strike a thoughtful pose if you like. Come no further than, huh. And it doesn't have to be a revelation. It's just a text. That was Tolke reading his piece Against Sanctity, which you can find at arcbooks.dk along with all the other articles on the Arc Reveal. So what have we learned? Books are great. We all know that. And the only thing that comes close to transcending a great book is great sex. Imagine being able to have great sex and read a great book at the same time. It sounds phenomenal. The ultimate coalescence of the higher pleasures in life. But while we may make love in theory, it turns out that we usually just touch ourselves in practice. Reading and copulating do not go well together. Trust me, I've tried. I once reached for a copy of Celine's Journey to the End of the Night mid-coitus, and I was greeted by a slap in the face. Not one of those, this feels good, keep on going slaps, but a full-on how dare you hit to the face. Since then, I've not tried reading and fornicating contemporaneously. And anyways, uh, as I was saying, books can be marvelous, but that doesn't mean that we should glorify them too much imbue them with qualities that they may not have. Books are things, just like everything else, and we need to approach them as such. Enjoy them for what they are and dislike them for what they aren't or what they could have been. Though it may often feel like it, there's nothing magical going on. Books are words on pages, or zeros and ones transformed into letters on screens. Powerful words and important letters. They're still just text. And with that, we enter the church of the Holy Literary Establishment for the third and last time in this episode. Dear literary establishments, I have a confession to make. It's tough, it's not one that I share widely, but I will do it now. I have never read Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I know, I who pride myself in being a connoisseur of the American postmodern scene, who pride myself on having read nearly all of David Foster Wallace's work, of having read nearly all of Don DeLillo's work, of having read nearly 
all of Paul Auster's work, but no, not this one, not this mammoth of a book which one must get through if one is to say that one is a fan of David Foster Wallace. On top of my shame, I even own more than one copy of this book, standing on the bookshelf, just staring at me. One copy is an ugly paperback version to take on trips for when maybe I'll have the time to read it. And the other copy is a beautiful anniversary version or an anniversary edition, which I will keep on the shelf when I have read the paperback copy. But so far, none of this has happened, and I don't know really when it ever will. Please forgive me. That's all for now. I'd like to thank Neos and Toke for being with us and Macon for manning the confession booth while I was away. Again, head over to arcbooks.dk to read all the articles on the ARC review. And if you find yourself in Copenhagen, you should drop by the store on Mölleke 10, the heart of Copenhagen's buzzing literary district. <laughs>